Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Me too. Me too. It's a good day. Okay, so this morning, uh, this service is titled, The Problem of Evil. So we're going to start off with prayer, which is always a good first move. So Father God, we come before you this morning and we submit this service to you. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive from you, to enlighten us to the way you have designed this world to work and what your heart is for each one of us eternally. And we pray that over this service in Jesus' name, amen. All right, where did I set my drink? There we go. Okay, so uh, first off, I want to also thank our worship team. That was incredible. <laughs> that was absolutely incredible. Um, and uh, the Grunsess and the rest of you guys are just an absolute gift to our church. And thank you for being willing to go there and having the strength and courage to do that and sharing that vulnerability with us. We're the better for it. So, amen. We are taking a couple of Sundays at the beginning of, of this year to look at some of the larger questions surrounding the Christian faith. So most Sundays we are going to dig into like a particular passage of the Bible or we do a deep dive on one topic to help us enrich our relationship with God. Well, this week's and last week's sermon are apologetics messages, which means for us that we are addressing why the Christian worldview is true, why Christianity is the, the best, the absolute most reasonable explanation for why the world is the way it is. So there are several main challenges to the Christian faith, and they're not new. Uh, they've been around for a very long time, and many remarkably intelligent Christian apologists of the past have already answered them really well <laughs> and offered up brilliant responses to the common attacks against our faith. So if you run into other questions like the ones that we've been covering, don't despair. Uh, I encourage you to just do some digging. You can find some answers online. There are some great books, great resources. You can reach out to a life group leader or anybody on staff here, and we'd be glad to talk with you about that because we are convinced that Christianity has good evidence and logical reasoning to support it. So last week, Pastor Andy addressed the question of whether Christianity is at odds with science and evolution. He explained how we as Christians we can hold to different interpretations of things like the creation accounts of, uh, well, the creation accounts in the book of Genesis, and yet still believe the Bible and still have our salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, he also looked at the strengths of a creationist worldview and how it answers a lot of questions that a humanistic evolution-based worldview cannot. Most obviously, the questions of where all matter and energy came from. Science is a very useful tool that helps tell us about this universe, but it cannot tell us about the origin of life or anything beyond our five physical senses, like purpose and information. And if you missed it, I highly recommend you check that message out online, which you can do at AntiochChicago.com. So today, we're looking at what is often called the problem of evil. How can a good, loving God allow suffering? How can he stand by as horrific atrocities are happening in our world every day? How can he even allow evil to exist in the first place? And the argument goes kind of like this. If God were all good, then he would want to deal with evil. And if God were all powerful, then he would be able to stop it. Obviously, evil exists. Everyone on this planet knows there is something severely wrong with the way the world is and evil happens. Therefore, atheists argue, 
God is either not all good or he is not all powerful. Many skeptics of Christianity actually cite this as a conundrum that disproves the existence of God. And if God doesn't exist, there's no use for Jesus. Therefore, Christianity is about as useless and pathetic as the CGI on Superman's mouth in the Justice League movie. But even Christians struggle with this sometimes. And I mean, the problem of evil, not Henry Cavill's lip. So as Andy mentioned last week, this topic falls more into the category of philosophy because answering apologetics questions with scripture from the Bible doesn't really get us very far if the people who are asking these questions don't believe in the Bible as a true source of information to begin with. But we can still use our God-given intelligence and critical thinking to offer solid reasons for our faith. Now, to properly examine this problem, today I'm going to be discussing the difference between subjective and objective morality and how that informs our ideas of good and evil. I'm also going to be exploring the secular humanist viewpoint as it relates to this topic, as well as the creationist viewpoint. Now, I want to say, speaking about evil can unfortunately place our focus on that instead of the goodness of God, focusing on his loving heart for us in spite of the existence of evil, not focusing on his plan to rescue us from evil for eternity through Jesus. And so I hope that today we all walk away seeing the goodness of God in spite of the evil in this world. If at the end of this message the focus is more upon evil and all the badness in the world, then I haven't done my job really well, and so that's on me, not God. Cool? All right, so before we go spelunking into the abyss of the problem of evil, it's important that we stop and ask a question first. Because if someone asks you, why does God allow all the evil in this world? The best thing you can do is respond with, why do you ask? Or why is that something that's on your mind? Why is that person seeking an answer to this question? Has something happened in their life that has put them on a search or on a quest to challenge either the goodness or existence of God? Then we listen closely to their answer because there's a really horrible danger in just like firing off a quick answer or some snappy rebuttal first. Doing that will show them that we're more interested in proving ourselves right than we are actually having a conversation with them and listening to them and caring for them. If that person is struggling with a terrible loss or tragedy in their life, then sharing the love and compassion of Jesus with them greatly outweighs slam dunking a debate. If, for instance, they lost a loved one after a painful battle with cancer, or if they're just devastated by the massive loss of life from some terrorist attack or a tsunami or other natural disaster, the most important thing to do is to care for them and assure them that God is heartbroken when we are. The Bible tells us that he mourns the loss of innocent life. We can still provide good reasons for our faith, and we can still provide good reasons for God's goodness, but it needs to be done in an authentic, gentle, and caring spirit. Cool? All right, cool. So with that, we'll move on. So the real question that we're looking at today is not very complex. How could a good God allow evil to happen? Now, the two opposing forces in this debate are good and evil. We can further simplify that to just good and bad. And that's an easy concept, right? Good and bad. We get that. Good cop, bad cop. 
Anybody remember Good Idea, Bad Idea from the Animaniacs cartoon? I loved that segment. Um, for those of you not aware, I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations. Good idea, taking a deep breath before jumping into a swimming pool. Bad idea, taking a deep breath after jumping into a swimming pool. Good idea, whistling while you work. Bad idea, whistling while you eat. Good idea, doing your own yard work. Bad idea, doing your own dental work. Okay, we get the point. We all understand good and bad, but there are actually two kinds of good and bad. There's subjective and there's objective. So I'm going to break those down. Subjective means the goodness or badness of something is completely based upon the subject or a human being, in this case, who is interacting with it. So for the sake of this example, we'll use for the human being, I don't know, me. Um, I think red rooibos tea is good. I think it's really good. I think it's delicious. But it is subjectively good because my wife thinks it is bad. She actually refers to it as stinky tea. She's kind enough to still buy it for me every now and then, but here's another example. My mother likes sauerkraut. Even though it reeks as badly as rotting garbage left in the sun for two weeks that has somehow miraculously grown feet and then boiled its own socks after a marathon. Even though it smells like that, my mom thinks sauerkraut is good. I think it's bad, but that's subjective. Cool? All right. Objective means the goodness or badness of something transcends any subject, like a human being who is interacting with it. So killing an innocent, innocent child, killing an innocent kid, that is agreed upon as being bad. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, or what your circumstances are. Killing an innocent child, that's bad. That's bad for me, that's bad for you, that's bad for everybody, that's evil. But why? Why are objectively bad things objectively bad? If we call something objectively bad or objectively evil, we're implying that that thing or action has crossed a line. It's not a gray issue anymore. It's not up for debate. It's evil. Things like human slavery, rape, sex trafficking, child abuse, serious issues, they have crossed the line into evil because they've broken this moral law that we all seem to hold to. Where did that law come from? Well, it's a logical conclusion that any law requires a lawgiver. So think of it like this. The Autobahn is the federal highway system in Germany. Can you get busted for breaking the speed limit on the Autobahn? No, because it's actually world famous for the fact that most of it has no enforced speed limit. There's no law given, so you can't break the law. A good or bad speed on the Autobahn becomes subjective. I can say you're driving faster than I'd like you to. I can say you're driving slower than I would. But I cannot say that you're breaking the law. And I can't say that you're doing something wrong by any standard other than mine. Well, you know, Gregory, there are actually some urbanized parts of the Autobahn that do have speed limits. Yes, I know. And quit stepping on my analogy. Um, <coughs> this brings us to the secular humanist worldview. People who subscribe to the secular humanist worldview, they are atheists. 
they deny the existence of God. Yet, you don't see them running around murdering and pillaging and defying all the rules of modern society. They're almost all really well-behaved, even kind people. Some of them probably much more kind than many religious people we might know. They would say that they're motivated to do good things out of just a desire to do good. They don't have a fear of going to hell motivating their good behavior. They don't have religious guilt motivating their good behavior. But they have this genuine desire for the well-being of humanity and for the earth in general. And most supporters of that view would claim that their morality is not merely subjective. They'd say it's objective. Because, their view is, the social contract of objective morality has evolved into humanity for the good of our species, getting our DNA into the next generation. Basically, I don't kill you, you don't kill me, we both do a lot better. Human beings keep on making more human beings. Yay. One of their criticisms of Christianity comes in the challenge, name one good thing you can do as a Christian that I can't do as an atheist. Sounds like a big challenge, but the implication is that they're doing good things just because they like doing good things, and they don't need God to tell them what's good and what's not. But there are some major flaws with this. First, this challenge is like saying, you believe there are authors who write books. I don't. I believe books just magically appear. Now, show me one book that you can read that I can't read. See? We don't need authors to read, so they don't exist. Well, of course, we can both read the same books, but you would never be able to read any books if it wasn't for an author. Similarly, we can both do good works, but you wouldn't be able to do anything much less good works, much less know what good is without God. Second, they are still not recognizing where the measurement of what is good and what is bad, where that measurement comes from. They smuggle objective morality into their arguments all the time, but they're not entitled to it without an absolute law to measure goodness by before using goodness as the goal. So look for that when they speak. If you're having a conversation with somebody from this worldview, they'll use words like good or goodness or better or ideal or preferred. But those words have to be compared to an absolute standard for them to have any meaning. So where do they get their standard for goodness? It needs a beginning point. It needs somewhere that it starts, just like last week's message of where did all the energy and matter that was part of the Big Bang come from? It's an essential issue that they simply cannot address. Now, some secularists will kind of admit uh, that it's, it's all subjective. A few of them. Some of them will dismiss the idea of objective evil altogether, though, and they'll say there is no real evil. Evil's just this undesirable sort of thing that humans do to each other when we're not being nice. But again, undesirable things. Undesirable compared to what? Who or what determines what actions get called undesirable or evil or virtuous? Without God, without an absolute lawgiver, the only things that are informing our morality of what's good and what's not are culture, societal norms of the day and age or country in which we live, or just our own personal whims. That is subjective morality. So that means if I were a humanist, 
I could not say child molestation is morally wrong by any true, lasting, objective standard, only that I don't particularly care for it. That's just not my jam, yo. I evolved to think this way, but maybe that pedophile didn't. I can't say that the treatment of women in most Middle Eastern countries is evil or wrong, only that it's just not how we do it here in the good old U.S. of A. And we see this mindset warping our culture on a daily basis. One day, we're asked to tolerate and not criticize something. The next day, we're bullied if we don't accept it. The next day, we're vilified if we don't glorify it. Moral evolution is what some people call that. There are these behaviors that were once considered harmful to people, harmful to families and society because an objective, universal measure of morality was used to measure those things. But now those same behaviors have been championed as good because in a morally subjective culture, the loudest voices get to decide what's right and what's wrong. And that can change all the time, and it does. There's a guy named Sam Harris, and he is an atheist author and a critic of religion, which that's kind of funny. Like, if you look him up online, like his LinkedIn page and his bios and all that, critic of religion. Okay, is that on your business card? It's kind of funny. But anyway, so that's how he describes himself. But he promotes the idea in, in his books and in his popular TED speech that we don't need God to find absolute objective morality. We can do that on our own without any creator. He says our goal should be human flourishing. And that means reducing suffering and improving the quality of life for all human beings. Because we can all agree that that's objectively good and we all should work towards that together as humankind. Now, as with the other m arguments that we've talked about already, this one is also severely flawed. What are we measuring human flourishing by? Who gets to decide that? It sounds like a really nice idea at first until we start thinking it through. So let's say we have a healthy seven-year-old girl, and then we have five other girls who are all dying, and they're in need of an organ transplant to live. Well, if we kill the healthy girl and distribute her organs, we save five young girls' lives. Is that human flourishing? No, that's murder. That's, that's murdering somebody. Other people in history have tried this idea before, with a thin veil over it when they did it as well, that the poor and feeble were considered a drag on society, and it would actually improve the country's economy and improve the citizen's quality of life if we just make all the inconvenient people disappear. But it was marketed as human flourishing. It was marketed as making the country better. Nazism, human flourishing. That better not wind up as an isolated sound clip, by the way. <laughs> all right, so, um, again, Nazis are bad, okay? All right, again, Harris is smuggling in good and bad into his argument. Human flourishing is good, human suffering is bad, but he's not offering any explanation of why or where his concepts of good and bad are coming from. Why isn't giraffe flourishing more superior to the than human flourishing? Why isn't that our goal? Why isn't wiping all of us Earth-polluting humans off of the planet, what's best? 
without a perfect holy God setting our standard for what's right and what is wrong, we have nothing but opinions and personal preferences. We're just going to argue with each other over it. But what if it's not just philosophical for me? What if, what if I've got a heart issue I'm suffering from? Not like a physical heart issue, but like deep within me, an emotional issue I'm struggling with over this topic. What if I decide that a good God, I just can't get my hand around, get my head around how he could ever allow evil. I decide a good God could never allow all this evil and suffering, so I abandon my faith and I take God out of the, the equation entirely. What's the result? Does it make my heart not break when I hear about a young girl being kidnapped and sold into slavery at a gas station right by my house? Well, there's no God now, so, oh, I feel so much better about that. No, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't solve anything. The evil stuff keeps happening, and I am still grieved by it, and I should be. With God, though, I have somebody to turn to. I have someone to go to for comfort and strength in the midst of all this evil. That's worth something. Either way, we will always know in our souls that these things are evil. Why? Well, I mentioned we weren't going to do a whole lot of stuff in the Bible based on an apologetics message, but the people in here will, will get it. So the book of Romans says that God has written his law on our hearts. We know right and wrong from the beginning. He built that into everybody. We can pretend like that's not really the case. We can try, like Sam Harris and these other people, to find other explanations for why I am so grieved over the evil in this world. And I can point to other things and say, yeah, we just kind of know it. We evolved this way. But the truth is, God wrote that on our hearts. And it is only by ignoring what God has written on our hearts that we're able to step into that evil. The existence of evil and our problem with it is truly evidence for God rather than proof against him. Otherwise, don't you think by now, like the entire human race, if we just evolved this way, that we would just be like, you know what? This is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. No biggie. But we're not like that. We know there's something wrong with this. So it turns out the problem of evil isn't really a question about God's existence. It's a question about God's character. It's a challenge to his goodness. Why does a good God allow evil? So to sum up before we move along, atheism cannot define objective good. Therefore, it just cannot comment on good and evil or morality. We have to presume God's existence as the absolute lawgiver before we can talk about what evil things defy any absolute law. Otherwise, it's all just opinions and preferences, and we have no business telling anybody to change their behavior or that they're wrong, regardless of what they do. We can't even say Hitler was a bad guy. We can just say, not how I would have done it. Once again, despite the criticisms, Christianity is the best explanation for why the world is the way it is. So, we covered the secular humanistic viewpoint. Next up, we're going to talk about the creationist viewpoint. So, 
the creationist viewpoint is that our perfect God made our world to be perfect. He made all life on this planet and said, everything is good. He made human beings different in that he gave us the capacity to choose to obey him or choose not to. Now, the first people, Adam and Eve, were tempted to doubt and defy God, and they chose poorly. It didn't just mess up their relationship with God. It broke our world. It broke the universe. And death and evil took up permanent residence here. This is now a fallen world. Evil happens here now. God is absolutely perfect. Things that are even a little bit not perfect can't live in his presence. The further away from God something is, or the less like God it is, the more evil it is. Now, after Adam and Eve, all of us human beings have continued sinning. Totally not good, but hey, hand clap for consistency, right? Yeah. Okay. We're continuing to be tempted by that same enemy, and evil keeps running rampant because humans keep choosing to do evil. It's part of the system that God set up, just like with gravity. I have the benefit of not flying off into space because gravity exists. It's a way that God set things up. It also means if I step off this stage, I'm going to fall. It's a system. So to create beings who had the capacity to choose to love God, the choice not to love him had to actually be on the table. Even when we believe that God is real, as I assume most of us in this room probably do, we may still struggle with the concept of why God allows evil and suffering to exist in this world. He's all-powerful, right? Can he just stop all this mess? And it doesn't get easier for us when critics say, well, the Bible says God is love, but then in your Bible he goes off and he does all this stuff that is totally, completely unloving. So on that one, you just have to say, no, because that's sort of ridiculous when you think about it. If God really is love, that would be like my buddy Guy Haynes here. If I said, last night, Guy Haynes was at his house, and he was cooking steak, and it tasted great. And somebody said, that's not a very Guy Haynes kind of thing to do. He doesn't cook steak. And I would say, I disagree with you. I think that's a very Guy Haynes thing to do. And then Guy says, I'm Guy Haynes, and I say that's a very Guy Haynes thing to do. And then they say, I don't think so. Doesn't sound like Guy Haynes to me. Who's, who's got the authority in that discussion? Guy does, because he knows him. He is Guy. So if God is love, and somebody looks at the Bible and says, God did something that was not loving, you're wrong. <laughs> that's, that's just all there is to it. He gets to decide what love is. We don't get to comment on it. Amen. <laughs> so, yes, some really, 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 really messed up stuff goes down in the pages of the Bible. But one thing we need to know is that some things in the Bible are merely descriptive, meaning this happens once, and some things are prescriptive, as in you should do this. Not everything is, dis- is, is prescriptive. Some things are just this happened one time, and those things cannot be attributed to the character of God. Critics are also quick to point out that there's a lot of death and warfare that happens in the Old Testament. Well, that's somewhat ironic to me on this topic. 
because those battles have to do with people groups who were in complete opposition to God and his people. You have nations that were continually sacrificing their own children to demonic false gods. They were raiding other neighboring communities and stealing those children and sacrificing them to demonic false gods. They were regularly murdering infants and toddlers. These were child killers. Sorry, I get a little worked up about this. They were also raiding these other communities, taking slaves, and slaughtering entire tribes. That is the kind of thing that if God had not done anything, many of these same critics would say, why didn't God stop that? Why didn't he step in and stop that evil? Right? How could a good God, a good loving God, allow that evil to continue? Why didn't he stop those murderous, child-killing, demon-worshipping, genocidal bandits? He did. He stepped in and stopped that evil. And some people still aren't happy about it. I've got a lot more to say on that, but in the interest of time, I'm going to have to skip ahead. So uh, we can have a talk some other time. <laughs> so regardless of all those things, some people might think, you know what, that is absolutely horrible. I still, that still sounds awful to me. I agree. And I think the Bible gives us enough information to conclude that God agrees too. This is a broken, fallen world we live in, and it's that way because of our sin, and it's not easy to fix. It's not simple to deal with. The price Jesus Christ paid for our salvation was his own immeasurable pain and suffering. There are extremely difficult passages in the Bible because there are extremely difficult times in this life because of the evil that our sin creates. Similarly, there are critics who point to things like, the Bible says that behavior is bad. And I know people who do that or who live that lifestyle or have struggled with that before. So I can't believe that God would say that's wrong. That they can't still be with him even though they're engaging in something that's, that's called a sinful behavior. And doing it, not doing it as in I'm facing this and I'm struggling with temptation over it and I'm trying to, get, but, but like this is me. Our personal experience is important in many decisions that we have. For instance, like how people keep claiming that they've found a gluten-free pizza that doesn't taste like boiled shoelaces. My personal experience has proved that wrong. Our personal experiences and circumstances can be valuable, extremely valuable, but we cannot allow them to inform our view of God's goodness because our personal experience, let's just be honest, it might be flawed. It might be incomplete. We might be misunderstanding something. And it doesn't overrule God's word about himself. When it comes to the character of God being in question, there's actually another Bible verse I'm going to cite. It's in Romans 3, and it says, Let God be true and every man a liar. What does that mean? Let God be true and every man a liar. In that passage, Paul is addressing the question of, when Christians don't live like Christ, when they don't live like Christians should, does that disprove the gospel? Absolutely not. The gospel is true regardless of what any human being does or doesn't do. Paul is saying, I don't care what any of the circumstances look like. Christ is true. Every single person in this world could say that what God calls good is evil and that what God calls evil is good. God remains true. No matter what popular culture says or what my personal experience is, no matter who tries to hijack and reinterpret scripture to make it fit their agenda of the day, God's word is truth. 
there. Amen. <laughs> if it comes down to what I've seen, what I feel, what my personal experiences has been, who I've known, all that versus what God has said, I have to lay down my earthly, limited, skewed perspective and trust God and trust that he's good and he knows what he's doing and he's doing a better job than I would and he loves me and he loves you and he loves everybody we have ever known or ever will known far more than we do. No matter what happens, we have to trust God's character. And I won't deny this gets really difficult when we're, we're not just seeing evil, but we're actually experiencing suffering and the impact of evil touching our own lives. So what happens when it's not just some Bible story anymore, but it's our tragedy? Even as Christians, we're not immune to hardship and loss and pain. We might not just be struggling with why God allows evil in the world, but why he didn't intervene in our situation. To be honest, sometimes it's almost an automatic reaction for us to think, God says he loves me. God says he's completely good and faithful, yet he didn't stop this from happening. Two weeks ago, uh, my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Valentina, was rushed to the emergency room. She was sick, and her fever was rising very rapidly, and we were not aware that we were actually getting false readings of her temperature. Uh, we weren't able to get her fever to drop, and it was far higher than we thought it was. And it was high enough that she started having seizures. And so as I'm carrying her to our van to go to the hospital, it looked like she stopped breathing. She was unresponsive, and her face was blue. And all these nightmare scenarios that a parent would have in that situation are going through my mind and my wife's mind. I had one of my close friends years ago die from having a seizure. Also, my young sister, she has battled epilepsy all her life. Knowing what a difficult road that has been for her, I wasn't just praying that my daughter would live. I was fighting against all these negative thoughts of what this might mean for the rest of her life. So we were praying continually. And if you were here that weekend, my wife and I were up here um, in praise and worship, leading worship. And you might have noticed my wife getting a little choked up as she sang, this is how I fight my battles. That's why. But Valentina's okay. They did get her temperature down, and she has absolutely no adverse effects from it. Praise God. Amen. Um, yeah. The doctors were actually, like, kind of chill afterwards, and we're finding out, like, this is actually a little bit more common than you would think it was. It's going to be fine. But you kind of want the doctors to be a little bit more freaked out sometimes, you know, because it's like my wife is telling me how she she's rushing there in the van. She's a frantic mom, gets to the ER, leaves the van by the front entrance, just runs inside to the front desk, holding a seizing child in her arms, scared for the life of her daughter, tells them what's going on, and then the receptionist calmly asks, what's her date of birth? It's shut up and go get me a doctor of last year. I'm kidding. <laughs> we, we're, we're very thankful for all the hospital staff. Um, but, but she's okay. Would I say God answered our prayers? Yes, absolutely. Why? Was it because we're in ministry? Or because we have great faith? Or we're just such good Christians? No. I have known many people 
who were in ministry who had terrible things happen to them. I've known people who were in ministry, had great faith, who probably read their Bible and prayed more than I do, and they had the exact same thing happen with a much worse outcome. I have to think, if that had been the case this time around for us, if, if the results were a lot worse, would God still be good? Would we still call him faithful? Would I still be up on this stage saying these things? Would we still turn to him to comfort us in our times of grief and hurt? And my answer would be yes. In the Bible, in John chapter 16, Jesus was encouraging his disciples and telling them about how he's going to be restoring our relationship with God, how after his death and burial, he's resurrecting, he's returning to his Father in heaven. And so he says to them in John 16, 33, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Tribulation will come, struggles will come, but we are encouraged by Jesus that he cares for us, that eternally it's over. He's beaten it. Our hurts, though, they don't go unseen. He has experienced heartache and loss and pain just as we have, probably far more than any of us will ever know. Because of his love for us, he's made a way to take our pain and not let it go to waste, to be a witness for his goodness and mercy, to refine us and to draw other people to salvation in him. And he invites us to call on him for comfort in those times. He is a God who desires a relationship with us. He loves us. He loves us to draw near to him when we're hurting. We can cry out to him when we're heartbroken. We can let him know that we're weary we're unsure of what to do next, that we don't understand this, that we even feel completely hopeless in this moment and ask him to heal our hearts. And he desires that from us. He desires that for us. The band can go ahead and come back up. I apologize for running a little late this morning. In Revelation 21.4, there's a verse that says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the promise of what eternity is going to be like. This is the life God desires for us to have forever. He desires all people to come to faith in Jesus and spend eternity like this. All good, no more evil. But even this has another side to it that causes people to question God's goodness. Eternity in heaven sounds great, but then there's the alternative. How could a good, loving God send anyone to hell? I have a friend who was part of YWAM, which is a, a very popular youth ministry some of you might be familiar with. He went on many, many, many mission trips. He saw people get miraculously healed in the name of Jesus. He shared the gospel for years and yet, <clears throat> he walked away because of this question. He said, I know in the Bible, Jesus says he's the only way to God, and that those who don't accept him are going to experience hell, but I just can't believe that. I'm done. There is no shortage of ministers who say the same thing, who've led congregations for years, and then they walk away from their church because they say, I just couldn't get around this. I couldn't do another kid's funeral and talk to a parent about how something could happen and, you know, if their kid was far from God, I just don't have the answers that they want to hear. But 
But it's not just them. We hear many people say, I could never believe in or I could never love or I could never serve a God who would, who would what? Who would disagree with you? Who would do things that you'd never do? Who would ever allow anything bad to happen to a good person? Who would send anyone to hell? But you see, when we do that, we place ourselves in judgment over God if we don't trust in his goodness. We're implying that he doesn't know what he's doing or that unless the Bible is wrong on these issues, he's just not worthy of our love and respect. So back to Revelation 2.14 real quick. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about how right now on this planet, we see things unclearly. We don't see the whole picture. We're seeing it from a very skewed perspective. We don't have all the information. But in heaven, we will, we will see and understand things fully. It says in this passage in Revelation that he will comfort us. Not brainwash us so we forget everything from this planet. Not so that we forget our loved ones who didn't accept Christ. He's going to enlighten us so much that we understand things as he does. And we will be comforted. How is that possible? I have no idea. But that's what he says is going to happen. So I believe it. Let God be true and every man a liar. Our personal experiences are not mentioned in Revelation. It doesn't say every tear will be wiped from their eyes except for those people who just can't quite wrap their minds around it. Except for the faithful believers who say, but wait, God, in my personal experience, and then God says, oh, right, snap. I didn't think of that. No, he's got this. God is good. He knows what he's doing. And someday we will too. We are assured in the Bible, we can know that on that day, we will be in total comfort with God, with no more loss, no more pain, reunited with our loved ones who are in Christ. We're not there at that place of total comfort yet. There will be struggles in this world, but Jesus has made the way for us to experience that for eternity, forever. And man, do we lose sight of how this life is a blink compared to what our existence is designed to be. Yes, we will experience pain and loss and see evil in this world for the short time we are here. We might be here for like nearly a century if we're lucky. But that time is less than a raindrop in all the oceans of the world. Probably heard that before. It's like a speck of dust and eternity is the universe times a billion and you're not even scratching the surface. That's still not even close to this life compared to an eternity of peace with Christ. So if you've not yet today made the decision to submit your life to Jesus, to accept this gift of eternity where you will never experience evil again, let today be your day. We're going to have some people up front that you can come forward and get prayer from, whether it's something that's emotional or something going on in your life that you just want somebody to to hear you out and, and pray with you over, that's totally cool. But if today, if you have not yet made this decision to accept Christ and live for him, I would encourage you, please make that decision today. Talk to one of the people up front. Let's pray. So Father God, we thank you that we can know that you are good. 
despite the things we see in this world. Those things are that way because they've pulled away from you. They're not showing your goodness. They are not in line with your heart for what you want to see done for your people. And that one day, all of this will go away. And we will have nothing but just the overwhelming love of our Father, our Creator, our Savior, Jesus, our companion, Holy Spirit. It's going to be amazing. So I pray that this morning you would work on our hearts to give us that peace, to ease the pains that we may, we may be going through, to know that you will not let our pain and suffering go to waste. You will use it for your glory. You will use it to fight the evil that is in this world. We submit our minds and our hearts to you this morning, Lord God. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.